it's to me one of the most fascinating things that I've come across when I started, you know, really diving into to heart health and, and the heart in general. It's this idea that the heart, it's not necessarily there to be this forceful pressure propulsion pump that, you know, I was told it was in, in my medical training and, you know, all medical students, you know, across the, the world are told the same thing as far as I know. If it's not this pressure propulsion pump, what is it? Why is it there? What's its job, right? And so there's plenty of doubt uh, among early you know heart researchers and, and physicians and things that that the heart was a pressure propulsion pump or that it was even you know the size of it was even capable of, of pushing the blood throughout the entire body one one guy said you need the heart the size of a whale to do that to create enough force fitness nutrition biohacking longevity life optimization spirituality and a whole lot more welcome to the ben greenfield life show are you ready to hack your life? Let's do this. If you're in your 30s or anywhere beyond, you got to start eliminating senescent cells in your body. These are the so-called zombie cells that make you feel old before it's time to feel old. They linger in your body after their useful function, hence their name zombie cells, wasting energy and precious nutrition and leading to so many middle-aged symptoms like low energy, brain fog, slow workout recovery, and joint discomfort. But luckily, you can nuke these senescent cells. There are a bunch of different newly discovered plant-derived ingredients that when expertly combined can help to reduce senescent cells, and the folks at Neurohacker have cracked the code on putting them all together into a fantastic product called Qualia Senolytic. Qualia Senolytic. Now, this could be one of the biggest aging breakthroughs of the decade based on what we know about senescent cells. It could take years off how old you feel in just months. And you only use it twice a month. Six capsules twice a month. Super simple. I'm actually on my cycle right now. I just took six this morning. I'll take six tomorrow morning. Then I set it and forget it for a month nuking my senescent cells and feeling younger in the process. So if you're sick of feeling old before your time, try, try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, S-E-N-O, neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, and that code Ben Seno will give you an additional 15% off at neurohacker.com forward slash Ben Seno. Well, folks, it's no secret. Our metabolism seems to be under an attack. Oh, man. Not again. A staggering 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. It's sugar, it's caffeine, sedentary lifestyle. We need clean fuel. And we need clean fuel that lets us do things like satiate our appetite without eating hyperpalatable foods chock full of fats and carbohydrates in excess. Enter ketones from Ketone IQ. This is the latest innovation from the metabolic health leaders at Health Via Modern Nutrition, or HVMN. I had both the guys who run this company fly up to my house and talk deep about ketones on a podcast. They're smart. They're motivated. They put a ton of positive energy into what they develop, and hence, scientifically proven products are a result. To support mental clarity, athletic performance, and metabolic health, 28% more efficient at generating energy than sugar alone. That's what ketones do for you, meaning you can do more with less. Ketone IQ was created through a $6 million contract from the U.S. Department of Defense, deep partnerships with some of the top researchers in ketone science. This drink is truly cutting edge. So you can avoid the insulin spikes, the caffeine jitters, and the mid-afternoon energy crashes. And you can start fueling with Ketone IQ and feel the difference for yourself. At HVMN, they also stand by their products 100%. So if you're not satisfied, your order is free. That's how much they believe in the power of these magical little ketones. And they taste good. 
they work. I use them on airplanes. I use them when I travel. I use them before I go play tennis because they seem to enhance my ability to be able to think and perform at the same time. So uh, if you go and subscribe at HVMN, you'll get a subscription wellness kit with uh, their three 12-ounce bottles of Ketone IQ, two shot glasses, and a golden ticket to gift to your friends. They've also got 24 Ketone IQ shots, one water bottle, and one golden ticket to gift to your friends. A couple of different packages for you there, and you save 30% off that subscription order at Ketone IQ. Go to hvmn.com slash beng. That's hvmn.com slash beng. You can subscribe upon checkout for 30% off. And if you live in California, lucky you, you can find HVMN in California Earth Bar locations, as well as Sprouts grocery store locations. All right. So look, we're all adults here. Some of us like to use nicotine to relax or focus or even just unwind after a long day. Some people, some people find it like this unique combination of focus and relaxation. Lucy is this modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum and lozenges and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume nicotine. So it's a new year coming up. So why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product you can actually feel good about? Now, it does contain nicotine. I have to tell you this. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. But man, oh man, this stuff tastes amazing and uh, turns your brain on big time. I like it. Uh, half the time when you see me chewing gum, I'm chomping on a piece of Lucy. Uh, even though you're supposed to tuck it in your cheek, I just like to chew it. The pomegranate flavor. Oh my gosh. And the, the cherry ice lozenges. Oh man. Okay. Lucy.co is where you get it. And you use promo code Ben 20 at checkout, which saves you a ton. Cause let's face it. Nicotine's not like the cheapest supplement, but 20% off. Holy cow. Ben two zero. So Lucy.co L U C Y.co and use promo code Ben 20 at checkout. Hey, I have been super interested in heart health of late. And as a result of that, I've been revisiting some of my own podcast episodes that I found to be the most beneficial when it comes to a very thorough and comprehensive approach to overall cardiovascular health using both ancestral wisdom, as I'm prone to say, and modern science. So I am unveiling to you once again, my conversation with Stephen Huzzy which is a podcast titled The Most Mind-Blowing Information on Heart Disease You'll Ever Hear, all based on Stephen's book, Understanding the Heart. This was a two-part interview that I did with Stephen. If you want to access all of the show notes for this two-part podcast series on understanding the heart, I think it's incredibly important. I think anyone who has a heart should listen. So hopefully that doesn't uh, extricate you from the equation. I would hope not. If it does, go talk to a doctor. Show notes are going to be at bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash heart health 23. That's bengreenfieldlife.com forward slash heart health 23. Let's go talk to Steven. One of my favorite health books that I've read and probably the best book I've ever read on cardiovascular health is called Understanding the Heart. It really, I think, is a critical read for anybody who owns a heart, which last time I checked was um, everybody. And before this point, my top recommendation probably would have been um, Dr. Thomas Cowan's book, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, uh, which is also really good. And I've interviewed Dr. Thomas Cowan before about that book, but that book I think is good, but this book is even better, like takes a deeper dive. If you were just going to choose one to read into a lot of the stuff that, that Tom addresses in his book, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. Um, and then the, the other thing I, I want to tell you before I introduce my guest today 
is that uh, you may want to pair this episode, which is actually a two-part series because we have so much to talk about. You're listening to part one right now. Um, but you may want to pair it with the episode in which I traveled down to L.A., to do all the different things that one could do to quantify heart health in a medical center. Uh, I'm talking about like, um, you know, calcium scan score and assessment of resting and exercise, uh, electrocardiogram of the heart and uh, ultrasound echocardiogram, a flow meter. So, so that podcast I'll link to in the show notes for this show. I'll link to my podcast with Dr. Thomas Cowan. I'll link to pretty much everything I've ever put out about the heart, and then I'll link to this new book, which is called Understanding the Heart. So my guest today wrote the book. Uh, his name is uh, Stephen Hussey. Uh, he's, a, he's a chiropractor and a functional medicine practitioner. Uh, he got his doctor of chiropractic and master's in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States in Portland, Oregon. So he's not like a heart surgeon, okay? He, he's, not, he's not a heart surgeon. He's not like a, a, a medical doctor of cardiovascular health. And yet, uh, this book is, is better than any book I've, I've read that, that a doctor has written on the heart. And, and I've personally just been a student of the heart for quite some time and, and delved into a lot of the literature around it. And, and I guarantee this is one of the better books out there about it. Um, so Steven, do, do I Steven or Steve? Uh, Steven. Steven. Okay. Steven, where do you live? Uh, I'm in uh, outside of Roanoke, Virginia. Okay. So you have a practice there, but then I, I think you also do a lot of like uh, teleconsults and things like that with people as well. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. So that that's your introduction to Stephen. Stephen, there, there's one of my problems when I have these, this many things I want to talk to somebody about regarding the book is, is kind of like where to start. But before we, we actually jump in to my first question for you, you know, as somebody who has written this book and who obviously cares for their heart, I'm just curious, you know, we're recording this podcast in the morning. Did you do anything particularly relevant to your own heart or your own cardiovascular care this morning? Like, like, do you have certain parts of your morning routine that are really truly focused on caring for your heart? Well, I mean, I, I, I have a, a gratitude kind of thing I do every morning. Um, mm -hmm. and then I, uh, I meditate most mornings. Sometimes I wait for when I go into the sauna, um, to do those. So that's what I did this morning. And then right before this, actually, I was, I was out in the yard doing my, my yard workout barefoot and out in the sun and things. And then on Thursdays, we only work in the morning at the clinic. So I was there from seven thirty to 11. And then after that, I went in the sauna, then the yard workout. And then here we are now. Nice. Okay. Well, we'll definitely be talking about the sauna because I, I think it's one of the, the most underrated practices, uh, particularly infrared sauna because the photonic light, which I'm sure we'll probably discuss either in this episode or in the follow-up episode we record sauna is, is definitely a big one for heart and one that I work in in my own practice. But man, like even the gratitude practice that you talk about that flies under the radar. I don't know if you saw the study that came out a couple of years ago on the effects of gratitude on cardiovascular health outcomes. It was, it was a scientific review article and it got into, you know, a, a host of positive impacts on biomarkers like endothelial dysfunction and inflammatory markers, you know, improved adherence to health behaviors, lower cardiovascular disease overall. So, I mean, that alone, you know, as, as much as people might want to say that they're, uh, I don't know, say like their, their statin is their go-to. I mean, a, a gratitude journal is actually right up there as silly as it may sound. So that's, uh, that's, that's something that people can, can jot down right away, uh, as, as non-impactful as that might seem, it, it actually is 
quite impactful. So, so kudos for doing that, man. My, my boys and I were out in the back patio about an hour ago doing the same thing right underneath the sunshine, which is also something that's great for, for cardiovascular health. You know, here's where I want to start, man. Heart disease it has kind of interesting origins. It's kind of an ancient problem, but I'd love for you to get into kind of how ancient of a problem that it is and where it, where it first began to kind of pop up as something being reported in historical records. So it's pretty old, I guess, uh, if we think about it, uh, you know, within recorded history, uh, it's definitely old. But if we think about it with within human history, it's it's pretty new, I guess. Um, but uh, so I guess the, the first that I know of uh, in recorded history that we see it is in ancient Egypt um, because the Egyptians were so, uh, I guess, somewhat obsessed with um, preserving bodies through mummification. Uh, we can actually study them. Uh, and so scientists have done so. Um, they've done CT scans of, of mummies, and they, they do find that there's atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries and, and in the um, other arteries of the body. Now, we have to take into account that um, I'm, I'm not an you know, ancient Egyptian scholar or anything, but I assume that the people that were mummified deserved or, or seemed to deserve that type of treatment were probably the higher ups in society. Um, and so they were probably eating what that society saw as the best foods for humans or noble foods for humans or whatever. It's it's very evident throughout, you know, studying of their culture and, and what they left behind that they were big wheat eaters and barley eaters. Uh, they they definitely uh, farmed the banks of the Nile. And so we can assume that that was a large part of their diet. And, and you know, scholars have, have confirmed that. I think that that definitely played a role, um, not necessarily because wheat is people talk about gluten and everything like that and how inflammatory that is. And, and I do think that's true. But I also think that it was probably the first time in history when they were eating a food that omega um, fats ratio was so off because mm. in wheat, the omega-6 ratio is much higher. Omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is much higher um, than any food previously uh, to that, that the humans would have been eating, I think, um, or at least in that in that quantity. Uh, so I think that, you know, when we talk about the omega-6s and higher amounts of those, uh, and especially these days with the vegetable oils, is contributing to, or I think, you know, pretty much directly causing insulin resistance and how insulin resistance is heavily associated with atherosclerosis. That's that's what's going on there. But also, there's an ancient document called Ebrus Papyrus, um, where, you know, in there, uh, it's been translated, so it's kind of, it's worded funny, uh, but it's definitely describing a heart attack. Hmm. It, it talks about pain down the arm. Uh, it talks about intense pressure in the chest. It alludes to the idea that they thought it was from something entering the mouth, hmm. um, which I take to mean as something they were eating. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I also... I take into account that this is, you know, one of the first, you know, major civilizations. Uh, it's not the first, obviously, but it's uh, one of the first. And and I think that that comes with a lot of changes in lifestyle, exposure to things that may be more inflammatory. I'm, I'm thinking things like heavy metals and that kind of stuff, but also just, you know, social class systems and things like that, that, that create more, I guess I'd say, modern day stresses that, right. you know, perhaps weren't more or weren't as uh, prominent in a in a hunter-gatherer type society. So I think all that stuff together contributed to those things we see. But it, it's a lot of speculation because we are just studying the mummies. And then also, you know, further on down the line, ancient Arabia, there's there's some stories of, of people who, you know, are described as, as having what sounds like heart disease or heart attacks. Um, so these are definitely things that aren't brand new, um, but you know, in the span of all humans, they're relatively new, but in recorded history, they, they go back pretty far. Yeah. And, and I, I would in no way argue that a completely grain free diet is something that's that's necessary for human beings. I, I think that, 
you know, the, the inclusion of a certain amount of, of non-GMO organic grains for people with, with stable guts may not be a problem yet, you know, in, in the anecdotes that you've given and that you outline in even more detail in the book and also in books like, say, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, we do know that kind of the combination of agriculture, you know, large cities, people living in smaller spaces, you know, increased prevalence of, I guess, you know, even just like things such as germ distribution would dictate that you're probably on the right track when it comes to like the the move into an agrarian culture and the civilization that popped up particularly around the the wealth of the Egyptians would have contributed to the to a, a, an increased prevalence of atherosclerosis at least you know especially if if the grain consumption as you've noted with with the increased amount of omega 6s is not balanced out with the with the you know type of compounds such as you know vegetables and and meats that may have been a, a staple leading up to that point. So it's, I thought that was, that was actually pretty interesting about the actual origins. And, you know, you, you also describe early on in the book, and this might seem like a disconnect to folks at first, but I'll, I'll bet that you can elucidate as to why you included this. You begin with a story of a naked mole rat. Now, I've talked about the naked mole rat before when I've talked about longevity and how it, it is oddly one of the one of the more long-lived mammals on the face of the planet. Uh, and, you know, I've talked about some of the reasons that might be due to increased carbon dioxide tolerance, even increased prevalence of, of some of the protein folding mechanisms that allow for better DNA repair in that particular species. But you specifically bring up the naked mole rat in relevance to cardiovascular disease. So I'd, I'd love for you to explain what we can learn from the naked mole rat and, and why that's included so early in your book. The whole naked mole rat. Uh, I, I, uh, Attractive I often, creature. Yeah, exactly. I think about it when I – I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon that used to be Kim Possible. That guy had a naked mole rat. That's what I think of when I think of naked mole rats. But now I think of heart disease. So I'll give you some background here. We have to talk about the evolution of reptiles – to mammals and and how that was allowed to happen because there's some things that had to happen in order to for mammals to you know be a successful species and so when we look at reptiles they they have a stress response system that is uh, kind of a single track and so it's the vagus nerve just like it is in mammals and humans and everything but it's it has one track and it's called the dorsal motor nucleus you know this is the nerve that communicates you know the stress response uh, and so if a reptile found itself in a situation where it was, you know, needed a stress response, it could do, you know, one of three things. It could it could fight off that stress, it could flee, uh, run away, or it could freeze. For for a reptile, which is what we call, you know, cold blooded, then, you know, a freeze response would literally mean like to play dead. And they even have have the capacity to like shut organs down temporarily, which is pretty, you know, astounding mm. that they can shut an organ down and, and have it recover. But they have such a slow metabolism. And this slow metabolism is why they're cold blooded, because they don't, you know, they're not um, continuously pumping through energy, making, uh, making that ATP and making heat and things like that. And so they can do that. They can slow their metabolism and literally play dead. And it must have been advantageous at some point in evolution because it was preserved. When we look at what had to happen for a mammal to evolve, which is this uh, warm-blooded, you know, very uh, metabolically active, very fast kind of uh, uh, creatures, you know, like you think about reptiles and they're kind of slow, they move pretty slow. Um, there's some that can do some sprinting and things like that. But in mammals, they're like, go, go, go all the time, right? And so for that to happen, uh, needed to evolve a stress response that that would allow a stress response to happen without a shutdown or, or of organs or a very slow metabolism because that would be, you know, deadly to that mammal. Mm -hmm. And so 
what happened was the vagus nerve split into two pathways. It's still one nerve, but there's just two pathways in the nerve. And so there's the, you know, the older dorsal motor nucleus, which was present in reptiles, but there's also the newer uh, nucleus ambiguous. And this was, there's evidence of this um, split um, starting to happen in, you know, very uh, evolved reptiles like crocodiles and, and turtles and things. Um, but it was fully split in, in mammals. This allowed for the, a stress response to happen so that a mammal could react to it without those organs shutting down. And it makes sense, too, when we talk about the stress response, uh, you know, the sympathetic versus parasympathetic, the, the autonomic nervous system balance that we need uh, for health. It makes sense that there would be these two pathways that are kind of balancing each other out because it's not like, you know, your body turns on one or the other. It's that they're always keeping each other in balance. Uh, and so it makes sense that, you know, the nerve that communicates those signals evolve that way. And so getting to, you know, the naked mole rat, there are it is it is a uh, a mammal uh, that seems to have, I guess, a combination of these things because it can definitely significantly slow its metabolism and live in very low oxygen environments, very ox- or environments where it needs to to have that slow metabolism. And so they've done these interesting experience with with mole rats where they and mole rats versus mice where they uh, put them in very low oxygen environments and the, you know, they both the species eventually pass out, but then the mouse would die and then they would bring oxygen back into the environment and the mouse would obviously stay dead, but the mole rat would come back to life, you know, because it seems to have these two different mechanisms. One is that it can slow its metabolism significantly. And two is that it can also, instead of uh, using glucose in the cell, it can start to use fructose, which allows it to bypass some of the, um, uh, some of the steps in the process of making energy, which create less like lactic acid uh, and require less oxygen and things like that. And so it, it did that because it lives underground in these subterranean dwellings that, you know, that are very uh, low oxygen environments. So with humans, we obviously don't, you know, we don't have those those capabilities. Uh, and there's, you know, there's few times when, you know, ideally there's few times when we're in low oxygen environments. You know, we were you were out on the savannah or whatever uh, in, in full oxygen. But I don't think that evolution was accounting for the fact that there would be a situation where one particular organ, which people could probably guess is the heart, would be forced into that a glucose burning, like a high stress state uh, that would create a situation where there's a buildup of lactic acid uh, in, in a low oxygen environment that, you know, I, I've termed kind of like metabolic heart attacks. Um, hmm. And so I can kind of paint that picture and we can, we can talk through that if you want, but yeah, that's, that's the relevance to the naked mole rat. Okay. So, so basically it's part of the mammalian stress response since that, that split in the vagus nerve that's important. So basically uh, staying in like a a sympathetic nervous system, uh, you know, fight and flight or, or, or free state can cause great harm to mammals, you know, particularly when it comes to the inflammation that can occur as a result of that and the way that it can depress metabolism. When you look at that that fight and flight response, I mean, we all know that that amount of stress can have an impact on, on the heart and on cardiovascular function. And so what, what you're saying is that the naked mole rat has developed a mechanism to be able to better withstand that type of stress? Yes, definitely. And and maybe this is something that, you know, the reptiles had too, and it kind of preserved it uh, or something. But uh, but yeah, it, it has mechanisms that, that allow it to survive in those types of environments. And and so that's an environment for it that it's just, it's low oxygen. When I talk about what could potentially happen in humans that could damage the heart, um, because the heart is very connected to our emotional state, it, it's more of a, it's a different type of uh, environmental stimulus that that's triggering that. 
Um, it's more of the unnatural stresses of, of modern day combined with a few other things that I think trigger that. I would call it a shift in metabolism that is unfavorable to the heart. Okay. I, I definitely want to get into what a shift in the type of fuel that the heart is going to rely upon would kind of influence predisposition to cardiovascular disease or to a heart attack. But just to close the loop on the, on the naked mole rat, basically we're a mammal like that rat. We have an autonomic nervous system that's constantly monitoring our environment and kind of interpreting, you know, whether we're in a safe or a threatening situation. Most people know we've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And what, what you're saying is that, you know, basically decreased vagal tone, right? Right. Lack of, of proper care for the vagus nerve would actually imply that that autonomic nervous system is not regulating properly and therefore would result in excess stress on the heart, uh, particularly via shift in substrate utilization, which we'll get into momentarily, meaning, you know, the use of, say, glucose versus ketones. But also, I know that the, the lack of vagal tone would also result in, from what I understand of the vagus nerve and having studied it in correlation to, say, heart rate variability, you also see that, that a lack of vagal nerve tone even affects the pacemaker cells of the heart and proper electrical function of the heart, right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's like, a, you know, because the, the vagus nerve is communicating this balance. You know, there's always supposed to be, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic signals to the heart. That's why the, the, the um, split in that vagus nerve was so important for mammals um, because it needed to be that balanced all the time. You know, mm -hmm. there was no situation where it could be one or the other. Uh, and however, there's, yeah, there's the situation today where, you know, decreased vagal tone is this, this decreased balance. And it's really, it's really almost like a, uh, a shutdown of the nucleus ambiguous, the, the side of the vagus nerve that communicates that parasympathetic. Uh, and then the body kind of reverts back to this older evolved mechanism that was in reptiles and still somewhat present in, in mammals uh, that, you know, can be quite damaging to a very metabolically demanding uh, organism like a mammal. Okay, got it. So, and, and then one thing that, that you did note was the link between emotions and the vagus nerve. And this, this is kind of related to what we were talking about regarding gratitude and probably why gratitude was shown to have such an impact on cardiovascular health. Because as you know, in the book, I mean, when we look at the vagus nerve, it, it kind of originates as a cranial nerve. So the heart's anatomically connected to the muscles of, say, like facial expression. And so even something as simple as, you know, smiling and having a positive outlook on life, we know that can increase heart rate variability and can have a direct impact on vagal nerve function. But I've done other podcasts before about methods to increase vagal nerve tone and it includes chanting and humming and singling, singling, uh, singing, gargling, you know, meditation, a gratitude practice. And of course, you know, there are, there are other, you know, more technological things like, you know, infrared sauna and, and vagal nerve stimulators and all sorts of things. But the main takeaway here for folks is that if you have low vagal nerve tone, which you could quantify with a measurement of heart rate variability, uh, and you have low heart rate variability, you are likely not experiencing the type of balance of your autonomic nervous system that would allow for uh, for ideal heart health. Is is that a fair statement? Yeah, and and proper function of this this newer evolved vagal nerve mechanisms that mammals have. Yeah. Okay, got it. So when it comes to the the vagus nerve not being in balance, how would that impact the actual fuel that the heart is using? 
Yeah, I've kind of termed these uh, metabolic heart attacks, and I don't know if that's you know what what we should be calling them or if I'm coining anything, but like that's that's kind of what I call them because there are definitely heart attacks that happen that you know there is a blockage present, uh, and you know it, it relates and it results in um, you know decreased blood flow to the area and you get necrosis, um, and that usually happens when there's you know some atherosclerosis that breaks off or or ruptures or something, and the body tries to repair it, but. I have talked to many, many people and looked into the literature, and there are plenty of examples of people who have had heart attacks, which means you know there's there's tissue death there, and you know the troponin levels are high when they're tested, uh, and there is no blockage whatsoever. Even a, a coronary artery pathologist named Giorgio Baraldi, who is his you know or who who did he's he's since passed, um, a lot of work in this area in showing that there there's a there's a mechanism that can happen uh, that causes a heart attack with with no blockage whatsoever and it has a lot to do with this balance in our stress response and a shift in metabolism or a forced shift in metabolism i would say they kind of have to set the stage a little bit because when we look at you know people in society today there's it's it's very likely that they will be metabolically inflexible which means that they've kind of lost the ability to you know go readily back and forth to burning you know carbohydrates uh, versus or glucose versus fatty acids uh, and ketones things like that um, and so, you know, there's studies that come out that say that, you know, almost 90% of people in America are, are have some aspect of poor metabolic health. So that's a concern. Um, and then there's also high rates of what we call inflammation and oxidative stress uh, from many different sources, including, you know, psychological stress, uh, but toxin exposure, poor diet, things like that. And so um, that's very relevant as well, which, which I'll explain. And then there's this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system, which we've kind of alluded to uh, a few different times. The stressors of modern day environments are not conducive to health or balance in our stress response and that communication of those stress signals to all organs, really, but specifically the heart. A situation can happen where you have these imbalances. And let's say go, you have these imbalances, you have this uh, imbalance in your autonomic nervous system. It's already it's already leaning more toward poor vagal tone, uh, and then you go through a stressful event. Um, and there's, you know, plenty of evidence that shows that heart attacks are often preceded or during very stressful events or stressful times in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mondays are, are one, or even unfortunately, like major holidays can be stressful for people, and that's that's one. Or major sporting events where people are betting tons of money. Like those are times when we see higher prevalence of heart attacks. What we see is that. If that balance signal, so the signal of the autonomic nervous system, the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic signals to the heart and to all organs, but specifically here we're talking about the heart, is communicated to the heart cells by substances, uh, one called CAMP, which is the sympathetic, and then CGMP, uh, which is the parasympathetic. And those two um, substances, like when the, when the signals are communicated to the heart cells, those two substances go into the heart cells and tell it to do certain things, right? It's supposed to be balanced. The, the key is, is that for the, for the parasympathetic signal to be communicated to the heart cells, it needs nitric oxide to enter the cells. Okay. That's really critical because if you're in a state of high oxidative stress, that has been shown over and over again in the research to deplete nitric oxide um, for various reasons. A, you know, there could be damage to the lining of the artery, which is where the nitric oxide is um, produced. But also, nitric oxide can and act like an antioxidant. And so if there's lots of free radicals running around, those things can get eaten up by that. And so if there's not, you know, readily available nitric oxide, then that parasympathetic signal coming into the cell gets blocked a little bit or delayed or even just reduced. And so if we have this sudden stressful event, then all of a sudden, the, the heart 
uh, cells get signal from sympathetic only or predominantly sympathetic. Mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the absence of nitric oxide or adequate amounts of nitric oxide. Um, exactly. And so when that happens, it's just like when you uh, go for a run uh, and you, you stimulate sympathetic to your skeletal muscles, right? Uh, which is necessary, and that's it's a it's a good stress. I'd say a hormetic stress kind of thing, and it's good for you. But the the um, muscles in your leg, they'll eventually start to burn because they get that signal. They start burning glycogen stores in your muscle, uh, and and eventually you get that lactic acid buildup, and it starts to burn a little bit, right? And when you do that, and if it gets too bad, you can just stop running, and the lactic acid gets pumped out within you know, an hour or so, or, you know, it pretty immediately stops burning if you wait a few minutes, you know. Um, but with the heart, it just can't stop beating. If you're in your 30s or anywhere beyond, you got to start eliminating senescent cells in your body. These are the so-called zombie cells that make you feel old before it's time to feel old. They linger in your body after their useful function, hence their name zombie cells, wasting energy and precious nutrition and leading to so many middle-aged symptoms like low energy, brain fog, slow workout recovery, and joint discomfort. But luckily, you can nuke these senescent cells. There are a bunch of different newly discovered plant-derived ingredients that when expertly combined can help to reduce senescent cells. And the folks at Neurohacker have cracked the code on putting them all together into a fantastic product called Qualia Senolytic. Qualia Senolytic. Now, this could be one of the biggest aging breakthroughs of the decade based on what we know about senescent cells. It could take years off how old you feel in just months. And you only use it twice a month, six capsules twice a month. Super simple. I'm actually on my cycle right now. I just took six this morning. I'll take six tomorrow morning. Then I set it and forget it for a month, nuking my senescent cells and feeling younger in the process. So if you're sick of feeling old before your time, try, try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, S-E-N-O, neurohacker.com slash Ben Seno, Backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee and that code Ben Senna will give you an additional 15% off at neurohacker.com forward slash Ben Senna. All right, folks, you may have heard the recent podcast episode I recorded with this cat who designed a drink. His name is Zach Abbott. He designed a drink that you throw back. It's a little shot, and it digests the toxic byproducts of alcohol for you meaning that you feel great the next day after you've been drinking. And while I only endorse holiday responsible drinking and responsible drinking in general, it is nice to know you can maybe sneak in an extra cocktail or a glass of wine just because that holiday party is so freaking long and there's nothing to do but drink. So you throw back a shot of this stuff and it, it basically digests acetaldehyde for you, which is the, the chemical unwanted byproduct of alcohol. And so what they've done is they've bioengineered this probiotic to do that for you. And it works amazingly. You feel great the next day. It's very, very simple. You get a box of this stuff. You throw back a shot of it before you drink. Or if you forget, sometimes people are forgetful. And you remember halfway through the party, you just throw it back then. And here's the deal. They've got steep discounts going on. You go to Zbiotics, called Zbiotics, 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 if you're in Europe. Zbiotics.com slash Ben zbiotics.com slash Ben. You get 15% off your first order when you use code Ben at checkout. 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason because you had eight glasses of wine and you woke up the next morning and you weren't feeling that great, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. But please don't have eight glasses of wine. So you go to zbiotics.com slash Ben. Use code Ben at checkout for 15% off. You got to try this stuff. Everybody I've told about zbiotics, they have literally come back and said, dude, I, I had no clue. I was skeptical at first. I was skeptical myself. 
but it actually works. Very interesting. So zbiotics.com slash Ben. It would be as though you were doing, you know, very simplistically uh, for, for an illustration, bicep curls, and your arms became fatigued, and you wanted to stop doing bicep curls because of the burn from the lactic acid, and the arms just won't stop curling, and so lactic acid just continues to accumulate and accumulate because, as we know, the cardiac tissue is not necessarily a voluntarily contractible tissue. And so if lactic acid begins to accumulate, you can't just stop the heart from beating. And, and by, by the way, I read your books. So notice why I said beating there, not pumping. I like it. Uh, I like it. Um, and foreshadowing as well. Um, so yeah, so when we get that sympathetic signal there, it creates a forced shift in metabolism in the heart because usually the heart and, and most organs really prefer to burn fatty acids and ketones. And they're always burning fatty acids, ketones, and glucose all at the same time. Um, but the heart seems to prefer, even in the presence of, of lots of glucose, to burn ketones and fatty acids. Uh, and so I think there's reasons for that as, you know, you know, as far as like not as much lactic acid buildup and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but when we get the sympathetic signal, just like when you get that sympathetic signal to your bicep or to your leg muscle to do those things, then the heart is, is almost forced to burn more glucose than it, than it really wants to. Uh, and that results in a buildup of lactic acid. It, it creates edema and swelling in the area. And, and that can create this negative pressure situation where usually the pressure is higher going into uh, the heart tissues. But if there's swelling and edema, it's that much more pressure than the blood can't really get in there because the pressure is more coming out now. It also interferes with with calcium um, absorption into the cells, and calcium is how you know muscles contract, and the heart is a muscle, so we can get kind of dysfunction in, in that area as well. And so it creates this situation where we get this stagnant blood, we get this um, this blood that's not being moved through very well or at all. It can result in severe hypoxia, which is low oxygen, and then tissue death. Uh, and so it's it's pretty fascinating uh, when you when you string all that together and it all starts with this imbalanced stress response and the other imbalances like oxidative stress and, and poor metabolic health and things like that but it, it goes to show that you know it, it's kind of like an, an organ shutdown um, yeah these reptiles and apparently naked mole rats could somewhat withstand those those things whereas in humans that can be a very dangerous situation mm -hmm. yeah there's a couple things that come to mind as you discuss that first of all the importance of nitric oxide for heart health, and that's directly because of the vagal nerve tone and in particular the the ability for the parasympathetic nervous system to be able to be one of the regulators of heart function. And that, of course, ties into really a lot of the, the chatter that I think has been going on more of late about the importance of nitric oxide, you know, originally vilified as a toxic gas and now well known to be almost like <laughs> Viagra for the whole body in terms of its vasodilator effects and its impact on endothelial function. And we, of course, now hear, and I've done many podcasts before on breath work about the importance of things like uh, nasal breathing and uh, even, you know, things like the type of, of humming one might do as, as part of a meditation or a yoga practice exposure to adequate amounts of, of sunlight, particularly, you know, near and far and, and red spectrums of sunlight, along with, you know, of course, nutrients in, in food that might increase nitric oxide production such as you know beets and arugula and, and it's funny because when you look at many of these foods that are reportedly good for the heart many of them do have an impact on nitric oxide production you know with, with beets actually being a perfect example of that you know pomegranates being another and so it, it, it's probably probably one important takeaway for folks here even if you're not you know jotting down the science crazily as we go through it would be a 
increase your vagal nerve tone and monitor your heart rate variability and B engage in things such as uh, nasal breathing and uh, other strategies to increase your nitric oxide production and availability. Exactly. And, okay. and it's so critical. Now, uh, I, I mean, even, even for the, you not just for the um, communication of the signal, but the health of the lining of the artery as well. Yeah. And I mean, the other, the other thing that pops up is you're discussing the, the metabolic use of either ketones versus glucose for heart tissue is, you know, the fact that years and years ago when I was racing an Ironman, you know, I, I first discovered both nutritional ketosis as well as the consumption of exogenous ketones like ketone salts or ketone esters as something that provided a very stable source of fuel for long endurance efforts, particularly because as I learned at that time, ketones are a very metabolic fuel for the heart, for the liver, for the diaphragm, for many of these systems, these organs that are working uh, in close conjunction with the autonomic nervous system. And since then, I've, I've kind of, you know, been a, a fan of some amount of ketosis, not necessarily the, the coconut oil, you know, butter, modern bastardized fat bomb version of a keto diet, but more of kind of like a low carb Mediterranean, you know, sane amounts of fasting, being careful with too much sugar type of, you know, ketogenic approach. I think that's better, but, but ultimately I've been a fan of it for a while. And so not only did that resonate with me in your book, but also literally like two days ago, uh, you know, oddly enough, right before we were about to record this podcast, I noted that a study came out about ketone ester treatment, improving cardiac function and reducing pathologic remodeling in preclinical models of heart failure. And this was, you know, admittedly a rodent study, but they were investigating, you know, inducing ketosis via the administration of an oral ketone ester uh, with the uh, hypothesis being that accumulating evidence is suggestive that a failing heart reprograms fuel metabolism towards increased utilization of ketone bodies and thus increasing cardiac ketone delivery ameliorates cardiac dysfunction. And sure enough, they found that in this study that ketone esters were quite effective for normalizing myocardial ATP production, you know, the actual energy production of the heart following myocardial infarction or a heart attack by providing the, the, the heart with an auxiliary fuel that was far more stable than, say, glucose. As a matter of fact, they finished up that paper by saying that ketone esters should be seriously considered as a treatment for patients with heart failure. Uh, but of course, why wait until the heart fails, right? Why not, why not ensure that, that the heart is burning a stable energy source rather than being reliant upon the sympathetic nervous systems drive to, to burn glucose rather than ketones as a fuel. So I, I thought, did you happen to see that study? Yeah, I saw that one. And, and maybe a few months ago, I saw another one. It was a, it was a big review paper of of um you know the benefits for ketones uh for heart health and it was listing all kinds of things but as far as like heart attacks cardiac remodeling or you know um improving cardiac remodeling uh, lessening it um but also heart failure um atherosclerosis and, and it was just like the the conclusion of the paper was that it was it's time we acknowledge this this uh, metabolite here uh, as something that could be extremely beneficial and and I'm with you as well. Like, I don't, I don't think that, you know, someone has to be on this extreme ketogenic, ketogenic diet, like, you know, 70% fat or whatever. I think that, you know, ketones are, are present, um, you know, if we're eating a whole food diet uh, and we're metabolically healthy. And because I've had clients that I work with that, you know, you know, eat uh, a fair amount of carbohydrate and they wake up after their overnight fast and then they have ketones present, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's just how it is. We don't have to be in this extreme ketogenic diet, you know? And, but also, it's really important to note that 
I think the heart has these mechanisms that uh, make sure it kind of has first dibs on uh, on ketones and, and fatty acids and things. Uh, and so uh, they're a little bit speculation, but you know the idea that you know we we metabolize fats in a way that makes them pretty much you know available to the heart first. Uh, is very interesting and, and it shows the importance, I think, of the heart. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just in case people are raising an eyebrow about whether or not this is just bunk, you know, and that, that uh, you know, science or, or medicine would deny this to, to be the fact, you know, when you when you read a paper such as that one that I was just talking about, I mean, I, I think there's a section in that paper where they actually say that it is it is well known, and of course they they provide scientific evidence as well that the failing heart reprograms to a lower capacity for oxidizing fatty acids, and then they describe that as the chief fuel for a normal heart. The idea that ketones, or particularly you know fatty acids more indirectly, are the chief fuel for a normal heart is something that both medicine and science have understood for quite some time. So we're not talking about some new groundbreaking idea. What, you know, we may get into later on is some of the issues with uh, modalities in modern medicine that have been used to mop up the damage once the body shifts into a state of autonomic nervous system dysfunction and shifts into that type of glucose versus ketone utilization that you've just discussed. But th this is not something that people are arguing about, you know, what the heart actually prefers to use as a fuel, right? Right, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's you know, well stated in the literature. Uh, yeah. And I cite, you know, plenty of studies in the book. Yeah. Okay. So, um, now, now this is going to be interesting to hear you shift towards what this has to do with water, and this might rabbit hole a little bit, but you actually get into an explanation in the book as you weave through this issue with the heart shifting out of its its normal substrate utilization and the poor vagal tone and, and the, the deactivation of the parasympathetic nervous system that can predispose someone to, say, a heart attack. You, you discuss water. You specifically discuss a form of water called fourth-phase water. Which I've discussed, you know, long ago with Dr. Gerald Pollock from University of Washington. You know, this form of water that's largely structured within the human body, but I've never really addressed it in detail in relevance to what it actually has to do with the heart. The floor is yours, but can you explain what water has to do with this scenario, particularly the form of water that you discuss? You know, I think there's a lot of talk you know, rightfully so about the biochemistry of the body. Um, and in some ways this could be considered biochemistry too, but I, I almost consider it the physics of the body. We're definitely, you know, we have, we're affected by electromagnetic fields and, and radiant energy and all those kind of things. And I kind of consider that the physics of the body. And so, you know, we're always told that, you know, we're whatever. I mean, I've heard so many different things, 60, 70, 80% water, right? And we are a lot water, but I think that it's as far as the states of water, solid, liquid, gas, um, there is some, water in our bodies that is liquid like there's water in the blood there's lymphatic tissue or lymphatic fluid um and then there's also um cerebrospinal fluid things like that that are clearly water but then you know, there's the rest of us that is a large part water and if i was to think that i was my body was made up of liquid water i feel like i would slosh around like a waterbed you know and and that's not what's happening so if i grab the tissue of my forearm or my calf it's kind of it gives a little, you know, I can grab onto it, but then I let go and it goes right back to what it was. And so that's because it's more like a gel, uh, more like a gel state, like kind of like if I poke jello, it'll give, but if I let go, it'll, it'll come right back. Right. And so that's what fourth phase water is. It's, it's when water is put into this unique situation 
where uh, it, it kind of structures itself into this between solid and liquid state. And, and that's the fourth phase water. It's this, it's easy water. It's also called, it's also called structured water. Uh, and, you know, it's the water that's in our cells is in a structured state. Um, and then there are certain areas in the body where uh, it also plays a role, like, like the arteries. So we, we can talk about that. So what water needs to structure itself is a few different things. It needs a, a hydrophilic surface, a water-loving surface. And so if we have bulk water next to a hydrophilic surface and we have radiant energy uh, applied to that water because water has these unique properties that allow it to absorb energy uh, from the environment. If it's properly energized, you know, then when it gets next to that hydrophilic surface, it will start to structure itself. And so, um, you know, the details of how it structures itself are that water is, is H2O. So there's two hydrogens and one oxygen. One of those hydrogens cleaves itself off and we're left with an oxygen and a hydrogen and those oxygen and hydrogens teamed up with other oxygens and hydrogens that have also been you know cleaved of another hydrogen and they form this lattice like structure it's like these hexagonal rings that team up with each other so it's kind of like a i think of it like a fence panel you know but it just goes on you know as long as the hydrophilic surface is and it kind of those fence panels kind of stack each other up next to or next to that hydrophilic surface um, and they they form this layer of called you know structured water, easy water, whatever. And so it turns out that you know this happens in many biological places you know on Earth. It happens in in plant roots and things like that. But you know the lining of our arteries is also a hydrophilic surface. The blood is more or less half water. Um, and so if it is properly energized, which there's you know various ways to do that, um, then it will form this on the lining of an artery, which is very relevant to um, the, the conversation around atherosclerosis. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to bring that to the discussion um, that, you know, if if we want to form atherosclerosis, which we don't, but if, if the body was forced to do that, it would have to get through this fourth phase water first because the way that it lines itself up and the reason that it's called exclusion zone water is because it excludes anything that's not it. And there's, there's only very few little hydrated ions that can actually penetrate it and get through the spaces between them. So in Dr. Pollock's book, he mentions, you know, the protein albumin was excluded from this exclusion zone. When it's formed, it can't get through it. And at first I thought that was weird. I was like, why did he just tag that sentence on to the end of the, the, the paragraph? That was weird. But then I realized that albumin is like the smallest protein that I think we know of uh, in the bloodstream. If that can't get through, then anything larger than it couldn't get through. And so if we're talking about cholesterol molecules, we're talking about red blood cells, bacteria, all kinds of things that are way bigger than the protein albumin, then those things are not going to get through. They're not going to touch the lining of the artery at all if we have intact and healthy fourth phase water there. That becomes very relevant to, to atherosclerosis. Everybody thinks that these LDL molecules, um, if there's too many of them, that will go and damage the lining of an artery, which I don't think is true either way. We get this fourth phase water and then it throws a kink in this whole equation. It's like, wait a second, what is this here? And, and, and how does it affect, you know, how does it help us explain what atherosclerosis is? That's just one of the ways that fourth phase water, you know, contributes or, or plays a role in, in heart disease or, or lack thereof. Okay, got it. So, so basically, you know, as I've discussed before on the podcast, you know, plants, for example, use fourth phase water to allow for the, the movement of water via this so-called exclusion 
occlusion zone and the electrical attraction of the the positive charge of the the water or the fluid inside the vessel and the negative charge on the lining of the vessel to move water against gravity up towards the the top of a plant since plants don't last I checked have a heart and in the same way humans despite having a heart really in an ideal scenario would have this same type of water structuring type of mechanism that would allow for a negative charge on kind of like the interior surface of the vasculature, a positive charge towards the outside, thus allowing for less resistance of water, or in this case, you know, blood made up of water to move through vasculature. That, that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. So, so not only does it protect the lining of the artery, so, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, because it excludes things that aren't it, it also creates this energy gradient that drives flow. Okay. Um, of, of water. And and yes, you know, what you're describing where we get this electronegatively charged area, this electropositively charged area um, in within the lumen of the artery creates flow. And once that flow starts, then it doesn't really stop unless some other force acts upon it. Okay, got it. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, something like, uh, say, uh, oxidative stress, basically, the, the idea is that easy water that you referred to can can break down due to oxidative stress yes yeah, so so because of the way the the easy water structured water forms it's a very um, electronegatively charged um, substance or whatever you want to call it uh, because the oxygen is a much bigger, bigger molecule and usually it's balanced out by two hydrogens but you take one of those hydrogens away to form the water and now we get this very electronegatively charged area and so those that electronegatively charged area has all these electrons, these negatively charged things that it could potentially donate, right? And so if we're in a state of high oxidative stress, which is a high amount of free radicals going around with unpaired electrons that really want to be paired, then yes, if if they're up next to fourth phase water, they're flowing around in the in the artery, then they'll steal it from fourth phase water and that can definitely break it down. Um, and, and Dr. Pollock alludes to this in his book. And so um, we have to look at what are the things that would cause oxidative stress, which there's a, a whole list of them. Like endotoxins, metals, BPA from plastics, advanced glycation end products, high amount of vegetable oil consumption, you know, exposure to EMFs, stress, you know, all those type of things, right? Definitely. Yeah, all that stuff. That's one of my main goals with this book and in general is to expand the conversation on heart disease. Hey, everybody's talking about cholesterol and everything over here, but what about all these things that contribute to oxidative stress that are that are breaking down the lining uh, or the the fourth phase water on the lining of the artery and then once that's broken down those same things will now damage the lining of the artery um, now they'll just steal electrons from it um, and this is all compounded and and complicated by insulin resistance because if insulin resistance is present um, insulin is re- is re- um, required for those endothelial cells the lining of the artery cells um, that make nitric oxide to to repair itself if it can't respond to that insulin and get that repair mechanism going then we get this oxidative stress that damages things and we get the we can't repair it and so the body says well we got to do something before this artery ruptures uh, and creates a real issue, you know, where we bleed out pretty much. And so what it does is it it takes cholesterol and, and minerals and things like that and basically uses it as spackle to repair those areas, hmm. uh, which is, you know, in the short term, keeping you alive. Um, in the long term, problematic because now that artery is less flexible, which could lead to uh, high blood pressure and stuff like that. But also the, I, I don't know, and I've talked to the researchers about this, I don't know if fourth phase water can form on top of a, uh, you know, cholesterol or of a, uh, uh, atherosclerosis. I don't know, and they don't know either, um, because if it can't, 
that's going to interfere with blood flow mechanisms, which could be why you know, atherosclerosis is so heavily associated with heart failure, mm-hmm. um, which we can talk about later. But yeah, so all those things uh, are, are very problematic. And it all starts with, you know, the health of this four phase water lining the artery. I think that's, mm. that's where it starts. And then you got to talk about oxidative stress and everything like that. But it's also why and we, I mean, we haven't talked yet uh, about like, you know, the, the sources of the things that can help structure that water or, or energize the water so that it can structure itself. But it's why things like infrared sauna have shown to increase nitric oxide production and, and um, produce blood pressure and things like that, because we're increasing the energized water that's able to form structured water on the lining of the arteries. Yeah, from 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 photonic energy being used to to allow for better structuring of the actual water, like restoration or support of that easy zone. You know, th- th- this is something that I actually did want to ask you about, but just to close the loop here, the, f- the free radicals, those would be the body's main electron demanding molecules that would impair, based on the research that Dr. Pollock has done, uh, some of the negative charge of the water that would make up the blood in the human body. And that would then cause the type of oxidative stress that would, uh, you know, cause more resistance to blood flow and the potential for atherosclerosis to, to, uh, take place. And when we look at reducing oxidative stress, you know, the, mo- most people are aware of inflammation of vegetable oils, of BPA, you know, these other things that I've mentioned, advanced glycation end products, emotional inflammation, you know, all, all of the things that would expose one to a hefty amount of free radicals. And furthermore, I've talked on this podcast before about books like Robert Becker's The Body Electric or Jerry Tennant's book Healing is Voltage and the idea that exposure to proper amounts of electrical energy energy seem to have an impact uh, that's positive on human metabolism and longevity and energy levels overall. I'm talking about practices that I've addressed in many podcasts before, like going outside barefoot and grounding and earthing, getting access to adequate amounts of sunlight exposure, uh, getting access to, uh, to, to blood flow via, via heat and infrared, and also via cold thermogenesis and cold soaks, adequate consumption of of water and uh, a a decent amount of of minerals. Uh, But, one thing is that a lot of people hear you saying this and say, well, I can get a structured water filter and drink structured water. And while that, that may allow for possibly a little bit better hydration or, or absorption of the water, definitely in my opinion, makes water taste better. makes coffee taste better. Like, like there's a lot of advantages to, to vorticing or structuring your water. Ultimately, and, and I don't know what you feel about this. Like th- th- there's a lot more to, to allowing for, the proper formation of this easy water within the blood than just drinking structured water, right? I think so, yeah. And and yeah. and I would say that you know those people weren't drinking structured water; they were drinking energized water mm-hmm. um, that you know potentially has the ability to structure itself once next to a hydrophilic surface. Right. Because uh, if you were drinking structured water, you'd be drinking like Jello-like stuff, you know. Yeah, energized water, me- meaning the water has has been has passed through a vortice as it does at my own home water filter. It passes through a you know series of beads and minerals that allow for the water to have a little bit more electrical potential once you actually drink it. You're right. If it were structured, it would be you know it would be uh, you know similar to what might be a chia seed gel or, or bone broth or something like that. Which which arguably right. those are also fantastic for for gut health and and for overall health. But what we're talking about 
is simply drinking water that's as close to nature as possible, as close to the electric potential we'd find in water when it's tumbling over rocks from a spring. And there are ways to do that without drinking from a spring, such as you know using something like a, a structured water filter, which I've addressed on my podcast before. But then once the water is actually in your body, charging it up with energy via frequent use of things like you know infrared sauna and sunlight exposure and grounding and earthing and uh, you know heat and cold and water and minerals, all these things are going to allow for better formation of, of easy water within the body, right? Exactly. Yeah. Rather than focusing on lots of people wouldn't be able to, you know, get a structuring water or an energizing water device, you know, in their home. It's just like, well, hey, the water's already there. Why don't you just put your body in the right environment to energize it? Right. Exactly. So, so you can energize the water once it's in your body. I mean, of course, related to the free radical, the, the BPA, the, the metals, the microplastics issues, you should make sure your water is clean and, and filtered, but it doesn't have to be structured because there are ways you can structure it once the water's actually in your body. I, I think for, for me personally, structuring water, just, it feels better on skin. It makes anything I cook at the water taste better, et cetera. But I can I can be off traveling and drink Pellegrino and Gerald Steiner all day without a water structuring unit and still get exposed to say you know sunlight and being barefoot outside and and I'm I'm allowing for that water to actually get exposed to photonic energy or say electric energy from the earth and and that's that's important a lot of people don't think that you know being out in sunlight or walking around barefoot is a way to care for your heart health but it, but it really is just because you're creating less resistance to flow throughout your body in general which actually leads directly into what I wanted to ask you this issue with flow. And this is something that's controversial, but I think folks can wrap their heads around it if, if you explain it. And that's the idea that in a stressed heart scenario, part of the reason for that is because the heart is being forced to push blood against greater amounts of resistance. And that could be related to the issues that we just got done talking about. But many people are under the false impression that the heart is able to simply pump its way out of that scenario. And I'd love for you to describe how the heart really isn't necessarily a pump per se and why that's important as part of the discussion here. And again, kind of similar to what I asked you about water, you know, I'm okay with you taking a little bit of time to explain this because I know it's, it's a little bit of a, a hefty question. It's to me one of the most fascinating things that I've come across uh, when I when I started you know really diving into to heart health and, and the heart in general um, because of my own personal health journey. But it can be hard to wrap your head around. But it's this idea that the heart it's not necessarily there to be this forceful pressure propulsion pump that you know I was told it was in, in my medical training and you know all medical students you know across the the world are told the same thing as far as I know. If it's not this pressure propulsion pump, what is it? Why is it there? What's its job, right? And so, I kind of went through. I go in the hip book. In the book, I go through the history of of you know heart, and there was there was plenty of of doubt uh, among early you know heart researchers and, and physicians and things that that the heart was a pressure propulsion pump, or that it was even you know the size of it was even capable of of pushing the blood throughout the entire body. One one guy said you need the heart the size of a whale to do that to to create enough enough force, you know. There was plenty of doubt early on, but then eventually the, the theory became that since it was, you know, beating like it does, looking like it's pumping, then then that's what's going on. And make no mistake, the heart does do some pumping, but it, it actually behaves more like what's called a hydraulic ram. Right. And by, by pumping, you really mean contracting. Contracting. Yeah, well, like no, no, I mean it does – it does a little bit of, of blood pumping, but really mm -hmm. no more than than just to move the blood kind of through the heart. You know, mm -hmm. there's no way it could create enough force to pump the blood throughout the entire body. 
Right. Um, but yeah, the contractions do kind of guide the blood in the right direction through the heart. That process is entirely reliant on the blood flowing more or less on its own. And so that's how a hydraulic ram works is it, it's flow activated. And so I didn't understand what a hydraulic ram was. I didn't know what it was whenever I first heard the term. And so I had to go look it up on YouTube. So I think people should do that, you know, to get an idea of how this thing works. But and it's not that the heart is exactly like, you know, the hydraulic rams that are made in, in engineering today. But but basically it's it's flow uh, driven. So basically like a hydraulic ram is usually sitting lower than its water source. And the water is flowing from gravity down into it. So the flow is happening already. Mm-hmm. Due to like different pressures that build up in the in the in different cavities of the hydraulic ram, that moves the fluid through it and actually creates a, a pressure that kind of pumps it out, you know, uh, of the hydraulic ram. And so the same kind of thing happens in the heart. And I think that Dr. Cowan did a great job in his book, kind of explaining this concept. But I wanted to go a little bit deeper, and so I, I put images in there, you know, looking at the the congruencies between a hydraulic ram and the structures of the heart, because I wanted people to understand that. And see those things, but basically, when when uh, when the blood is already flowing through the heart on its own, uh, there has to be a different role for the heart. And we we've already established that the blood can flow on its own. They've actually done experiments. There was experiments done in the 40s and 60s that showed that water continue or not water, but blood continued to move in the bodies of animals after they stopped the heart from beating for up to two hours after hmm. after it stopped beating. And then more recently uh, in Dr. Pollock's lab, they've shown that when you stop uh, the heart of a chick embryo, that the blood continues to move. More or less been proven that the blood moves on its own. What happens is that as the as the blood's moving through the heart, it actually gets it actually gets vortexed, which or swirled. Vortexed. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I imagine like, you know, I, I, I picture, you know, water flowing in a stream and it's flowing past the rock, and on the other side of the rock, it kind of eddies. I picture that kind of thing. However, in the heart, it's kind of this enclosed system. So there's multiple places as as blood flows through the heart uh, that it gets vortexed. And uh, the pumping or the beating, uh, the contracting, I should say, of the heart muscle facilitates a lot of that. And it's one of the ways that Dr. Pollock in his lab has found that energizes water. And so if we think about it in that way, the, the heart, um, you know, as, as blood flows past the, the valves in the heart, it, it kind of swirls on either side. The heart itself is oriented, like muscles of the heart are oriented in a spiraled nature. So when it contracts, it kind of twists and spirals the blood. And then also um, as blood like comes from the, from the veins and it flows past each other, it kind of it vortexes as well. Since this vortexing is vortexing in the presence of oxygen, I should say, which the blood is always oxygenated, even if it's in the venous side, it still has oxygen there. It's just less so than it does in the arterial side. Vortexing in the presence of oxygen is one of the ways that energizes water. When the water becomes energized, then when it gets out into the bloodstream in next to a hydrophilic surface of the arteries and veins, it can form fourth phase water, which creates the flow. So in a way, the heart is responsible for the flow of the blood. The the heart almost is like that water structuring filter we were talking right. about, except it's your your internal built-in water structuring filter because its shape and the way that it pumps, it's more like kind of like ringing blood through the heart, vorticing it and causing the the actual uh, formation of the of the easy zone as the water travels through the heart. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so in a way it is, it is responsible for the movement of blood, but not through this forceful pumping, you mm-hmm. know, uh, it, it's more through what it does to the blood as it moves through. Uh, but there's another very, also very important role for the heart, I think, rather than this pressure propulsion pump, uh, because not only does it, you know, provide this vortexing that energizes the water, 
but it's also in the spot that it's in for a particular reason because there's lots of research that shows that the heart is like you know in in like in like endurance athletes um you know it's been shown that their hearts can become more muscular i'd so to speak like they, mm-hmm. they're lifting weights with their hearts you know yeah, cardiac hypertrophy the, the so-called athlete's heart yeah and it's and it's not necessarily or researchers suggest that it's not necessarily that the heart is pumping more forcefully but that it's it's better at uh, stopping the flow of blood which sounds completely controversial and, and completely contrary to what we're told the heart does but if you think about it, if the blood is flowing on its own and and the speed of at which it flows is is dictated based on energy demand from the tissues. If we start running or doing you know some type of exercise, then the blood flows faster to the tissues. If the heart wasn't there to stop this flow of blood or slow it down at least and, and put it through this process of vortexing and going through the ventricles and the atria and things like that, um, then all the blood would flow over to the arterial side of things, to the tissues. And the venous side would collapse. The pressure in the in the in the system would collapse, and that would not be a good situation because it would mess up everything. And so the heart is placed where it is, in between the arteries and the veins, so that it can it can vortex that blood, but also so that it can maintain pressure in the system. Because if if it didn't, if it didn't stop the flow of blood more effectively, you know, especially in those endurance athletes, uh, then a bad situation would happen, hmm. and they would not be able to to do those sports anymore, and they they would likely die because the pressure would change. And there was Interesting early experiments done by you know um, scientists in the 1800s where they tried to recreate these models of the cardiovascular system and using a pressure propulsion pump. No matter what they did, they could not maintain the pressure in the system, but it's because they were using a pressure propulsion pump and not something that was just a they had no you know self flow mechanism in their in their model. Um, but they also were using a pressure propulsion pump that that wasn't stopping the flow of blood. It was sucking blood in from an area and pushing out forcefully to the other area, and they could not maintain pressure in the in the in the venous side of their models, no matter what they did. Okay, got it. So there's there's a few things that I would like to summarize for people because I I know we're we're starting to come up against time for our our first episode, and I know that in the second part of the episode that I want to talk to you about, we're going to get into you know a lot of solutions, but we're also going to talk about cholesterol, which we barely even talked about today, cholesterol and statins, and then some some of the big solutions, but um. What I want to do, and, and, uh, and, and it's very useful for me as I learn about these things, and I think for people as they learn about it as well, to kind of summarize some of the things that, that we've discussed thus far. So you've just outlined that the heart's not really the mover of the blood, but that when when we, we look at the heart, we do know that the resistance to flow as well as the shape of the heart are going to be pretty important when it comes to blood moving through the body and the resistance to blood moving through the body, which could ultimately result in, in heart failure if, if that resistance is, is too significant. So inadequate blood flow, which would be had through a lot of the oxidative stress mechanisms that we talked about along with inadequate exposure to things such as, you know, light, grounding, earthing, heat, cold, water, minerals, etc. That's going to force the heart to take on the role of a pump that it really isn't built for. Like in a normal heart, the blood should be flowing through the heart on its own. The heart chambers contract, they vortice the blood, and then the blood travels through the body in that, that exclusion zone type of scenario. And a slow transit to the blood, like like low blood flow, would result in in the heart kind of uh, basically changing shape, developing almost what we would see in 
an athlete heart, and that would be an inefficient heart that would respond poorly to any increase in pressure caused by inadequate blood flow. And you early on in this podcast were talking about the preferred fuel source for the heart, which we established was ketones. Uh, but the, this type of remodeling of the heart in terms of resistance to or, or, or increased resistance to the heart's beating would be something that would result in some cases uh, due to a, a change in the actual tissue of the heart, meaning that the heart muscle becomes damaged and needs to be repaired with scar tissue, which would weaken the heart's ability to be able to vortex water. And that's something we actually see in people who are stressed, people who are primarily burning glucose as a fuel, even you know things like endurance athletes or folks who are exercising too hard, who have high amounts of lactic acid, high amounts of glucose throughput, resulting in heart scarring, which has been well demonstrated in the literature. And that's also going to, to be an, an issue, especially if the preferred fuel source is not provided in the form of ketones. So we've basically got a few different issues here. We have change in the shape of the heart due to scarring, and that's caused by too much glucose utilization, lactic acid accumulation, and resistance to flow. We have the poor fuel source and the the oxidative stress along with with uh you know like like low blood oxygen that's caused by many of those factors and ultimately when we put all this together there's too much stress on the heart it's doing more pumping than it would normally be designed to and that would result in the development of of heart failure yeah and and you you kind of connected the dots is that people oftentimes say why do we care if the heart's pump or not and say well you know heart failure because it's assumed that in heart failure um the 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 heart is not doing its job well what if we've misinterpreted what the job of the heart is, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it makes it um, it kind of opens our eyes to what is heart failure. Is it is it the heart not doing its job or is it the heart's not getting the support that it needs from the ketones or the mechanisms of fourth phase water in the artery that, that propel the blood? And the proof to me of this is is the studies on infrared sauna and heart failure. Hmm. And I don't understand why there's not an infrared sauna in every cardiac rehab lab in the world um, based on these studies. I, I don't understand because it, it is so clear that these people get uh, so much benefit. Their blood pressure drops. They they talk about the, the heart, like, you know, in heart failure, the heart enlarges because it's being forced to have more pressure to pump, you know, heart muscle enlarges and it, it kind of gets stretched out too. When they use infrared saunas, the, the heart muscle or uh, the heart itself gets smaller, goes back to normal size or closer to normal size. The injection fractions increase, nitric oxide goes up, blood pressure goes down, all these things. Like it's just, it's phenomenal the outcomes these people have with infrared sauna. And infrared sauna is only one way to, to you know, stimulate these mechanisms we've been talking about. There's there's other ways too. Um, but that's one that's very established in the literature. It's what, it's what uh, drives home this point for me. Uh, that this is what's going on. I agree. I, I think it's a staple for heart health, particularly if, if you have access to, you know, well, preferably infrared. Heat will have some of those effects, but infrared particularly. And preferably, don't have your phone in there and use a low EMF sauna because as you noted, and I'm hoping people picked up on this, Stephen, you know, the, the pacemaker cells of the heart are are susceptible to uh, to uh, electromagnetic fields. They have really high densities of these voltage-gated calcium channels. And they, the influx of calcium that can result, you know, particularly in electromagnetic hypersensitive people, but in people, you know, and they've shown this in isolated animal hearts, for example, I think you talk about in the book, exposed to microwave EMFs, you actually see that influx of calcium that can be very problematic when it comes to the actual 
electrical activity, the electrical activity of the heart, because calcium floods into the cell and too much calcium in the cell causes dysfunction. It causes DNA damage. And one of the best ways to increase calcium influx into the cell is high exposure to, to some of these high end electromagnetic energy fields that we get exposed to. And so, so yeah, do an infrared sauna, uh, but don't, don't take your phone or, uh, or, or even go into a sauna that you don't know is low EMF. That might sound silly, but I think that in the same way that, you know, water and minerals and heat and cold and light and grounding and earthing and sauna are important. Uh, the mitigation of EMF in one's environment, along with things like a gratitude practice, a good outlook on life in general, uh, higher input of ketones and fatty acids than glucose, you know, all, all of this kind of stacks on itself. So I know we're running out of time. Um, and fortunately, this is just part one. Folks, if you're listening in, in part two, we are going to get into cholesterols and we are going to get into statins. We're going to get into diet and nutrition. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about some things that um, you, you may not be quite as familiar with as potential solutions, such as uh, magnesium and wabane and, and some of these other things. And then I have a real, real surprise for you uh, in part two uh, that Stephen and I uh, re really want to talk with you about. Stephen, dude, we, uh, we tackled part one. Um, and I want to thank you for your time, for coming on the show for writing this book and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to part two shortly. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so far it's been a blast. Can't wait for part two. Awesome. All right, folks, I'm Ben Greenfield along with author Stephen Hussey of understanding the heart signing out from bengreenfieldfitness.com. Have an amazing week. Well, this is pretty cool. Just put the finishing touches on a luxury VIP retreat in the Swiss mountains. So you may have seen a little bit of rumblings about this on social media, but the beautiful Six Senses Retreat, all-inclusive luxury locale in beautiful Crans, Montana, Switzerland, has graciously allowed me to bring a maximum of up to 10 folks, and this could be individuals, couples, families, into a transformative experience there where I'm going to lead breath work, hikes, workouts. You'll get hands-on foraging adventures with nature's freshest ingredients in their cooking class locale there. You're going to get a chance to do amazing spa treatments, a meticulously curated program. You'll get to meet my wife and my sons who will be there. Again, families are welcome. You can bring one or two or three kids. You can make it a couple's retreat. If you want to go solo, you can. There's a limited number of rooms where we're prioritizing couples and families. But again, if you want to get in, this thing is coming up around the corner, April 17th through the 21st, 2024. So it will be all-inclusive. You'll want to fly into Geneva, Switzerland, assuming you want to get into the closest airport. I've already got our flights. Uh, you'll want to mic your calendar for April 17th through the 21st. And here's how to get in. You go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash six senses 24. That's bengreenfieldlife.com slash six senses 24. And again, it's going to be incredible all the way down to like evening sing-alongs and stargazing and yoga and meditation. And again, the spa there is incredible. Six senses is known for having incredible retreats around the world, but this one in Switzerland is supposed to be one of the best. I can't wait. I led a retreat in Portugal last year and people just said it was the most amazing experience of their lives. This one will be just as good, if not better. So go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash six senses 
24, and you can get in on this retreat that's coming up right around the corner, April 17th through the 21st. I hope to see you there. Want free access to comprehensive show notes, my weekly roundup, cutting edge research and articles, my top recommendations for everything that you need to hack your life, and much more? Visit bengreenfieldlife.com. In compliance with the FTC guidelines, please assume the following about links and posts on this site. Most of the links going to products are often affiliate links, of which I receive a small commission from sales of certain items. But the price is the same for you, and sometimes I even get to share a unique and somewhat significant discount with you. In some cases, I might also be an investor in a company I mention. I'm the founder, for example, of Keon LLC, the makers of Keon branded supplements and products, which I talk about quite a bit. Regardless of the relationship, if I post or talk about an affiliate link to a product, it is indeed something I personally use, support, and with full authenticity and transparency, recommend in good conscience. I personally vet each and every product that I talk about. My first priority is providing valuable information and resources to you that help you positively optimize your mind, body, and spirit. And I'll only ever link to products or resources, affiliate or otherwise, that fit within this purpose. So there's your fancy legal disclaimer.